together. I'm your host, Holly Dunn. For this episode, we talk to Anne Jordan and Mitch Goldstein, cover designers for titles such as Humankind by Timothy Morton and Because of the Sun by Jenny Torres Sanchez. They do a lot of work with academic publishers and have also designed a cover for print magazine. Their award-winning designs have been highlighted in publications such as AIGA and Design Observer, Print Magazine, and The Casual Optimist. Here are Anne and Mitch. When we went to college at RISD, we both majored in graphic design, and we had a teacher named Doug Scott who gave us an assignment to make a series of square compositions uh, covering, essentially book covers for Calvino's Six Memos for the Next Millennium. And that was my absolute favorite project in all of uh, the four years at RISD. And Mitch did the same project and really enjoyed it too. And our goal when we graduated was someday to get to design uh, projects that felt like that that assignment, where it was very experimental, uh, image making and typography focused, but uh, related very strongly to written and interesting content. So the book cover is the perfect combination of those things. It's a place to really experiment with type and image in a uh, very clear framework, uh, but through that narrow, seemingly narrow limitation of filling up a white rectangle, you can really dive into a lot of different things. And then the bonus is that through the process of the research and ideation that goes into it, we get to learn a lot about philosophers and just all sorts of weird subjects, especially because we do a lot of academic covers. So we learn a lot about content we wouldn't otherwise be exposed to. So it, I think it's that blend of verbal and visual content and experimentation that we're really drawn to. But when we graduated from college, we weren't able to do this kind of work right away. So for many years, we did a broader uh, a broader graphic design practice, websites and annual reports and all sorts of different things. And it wasn't until 2014 that we were able to decide that we were going to focus on book covers, not 100% exclusively, but like the majority, I'd say 90% of our practice now is book cover design. So it took a while, but that seed was really uh, Doug Scott's Calvino assignment over 10 years ago. Mitch. Yeah, I agree. You covered it. (laughs) (laughs) Pun intended. (laughs) (laughs) So to speak. (laughs) Yeah, I think we've had an opportunity over time to, you know, like I said, to sort of dial in the practice to a place that is sort of like the most interesting version of design to us, right. which which is this book cover, kind of very very limited, very sort of restricted yet wide open in terms of what we are interested in. So it's been you know it's taken some time, um, and we still do some other stuff as well. But the book cover has proven to be a really good place for the sort of things that we care about. Yeah. Mm. And, and that, that love really comes across in, in your work as well. And I, I was wondering, what do you think that publishers and, and clients are looking for when they come to you specifically for book covers? Hmm. Well, 
<laughs> I think it really depends on the publisher. So what each client is looking for, it, there's a pretty big difference between the trade books that we do and academic books and what the expectations are. So with the trade publications, the marketing department is involved a lot more and there's more of a discussion of sales and, um, you know, that kind of thing. With the academic texts, it's much more conceptual focused. And of course, the marketing person is involved and that's a consideration, but it isn't the number one driving factor. Yeah. And I think that the nature of how Ann and I make these covers is not super quick turnaround. It's not, you know, sort of stock image, throw some type on, call it a day kind of stuff, which is, which is fine. It's just not what we do. Um, and so I think when they understand that our process is a little more involved and, and, you know, really big changes are much more difficult. We, we end up having, you know, any changes that's major is, is redoing the entire cover, you know, changing a word is it as simple as just changing the word. It's, it's essentially throwing it away. Um, oh, yeah. And so I think as they learn, you know, we've had clients we work with repeatedly, as they sort of learn our process, they understand the benefits of that process and what you can get from it, which is obviously the stuff that is getting published, um, but also the limitations of that process and, and some of the kind of catches with it. We should probably describe our process. I, I think maybe that's what you're asking, Holly, is why do the publishers come to us versus another designer for a specific text? Yeah, yeah. So, um, Mitch and I, we do, we, our process involves a lot of non-digital analog stuff Mm. and we try as much as possible to bring real physical processes and objects and phenomena into what eventually becomes a two-dimensional digital image. So we do that by gathering all sorts of weird materials and just spreading out an excess of materials in our studio and experimenting with ways to build stuff out of them, make uh, drawings using them, manipulate them in any possible way we can think of, and then ultimately document these experiments or three-dimensional setups, whatever it ends up being, uh, with a scanner or camera and then after that, we may manipulate it further digitally. But ultimately, every digital image that we make is really um, tied into something real and physical that we made with our hands in our studio uh, in real life. And that, I think, is what makes our work look the way it does and what makes our uh, work unique and maybe uh, why a certain publisher would come to us for a given text if if it needed that uh, tactile uh, kind of feeling that pervades the typography that you just can't get from working on a screen alone. Yeah, it's such a fascinating process. And um, well, I, I was wondering, I've got the image uh, for humankind in front of me with the, the bubbles. And p- perhaps you could, um, you could talk t- about how that particular cover was was developed of course so that that book is really strange and interesting and awesome uh and the the art director 
is Andy Pressman over at Versa Books. And he said in the description of, you know, what they were looking for, that he wanted something with a ghostly quality. And there were themes of uh, like telekinesis and all sorts of really out there stuff in the book. But ultimately, the book is about the relationship between human beings on this planet and all sorts of other what the author calls beings that are not human and not even necessarily uh, animals. So like what's the human being's relationship to a pencil as well as to a tree and everything in the world. So we wanted to uh, work with the idea of uh, something ghostly, something that's micro and macro at the same time, something that deals with relationships, something that's a little uh, weird and um, not immediately recognizable. Those are the kinds of things we were thinking about in that project. Mitch, do you have anything to add what was on our mind at the beginning yeah, of the process? It was about sort of being like talking about, you know, biological entities like people and not people but without being like super literal like we, we generally I mean I guess I think it's fair to say that generally we don't try to be very directly representational in the work it's it's usually almost always some pretty intense abstraction of the idea um, and so we were kind of thinking about like you know how could we get to an abstract idea of these yeah, things that how, the do you, how do you communicate telekinesis and uh, and ghostly qualities and human beings and non-living things and the universe and the world and biology and relationships and all this uh all this stuff in one image so abstraction is definitely uh what we turn to and then uh process wise we always have to make at least three very different ideas so this was just one process out of three totally different um, expressions that we came up with. And the, the book cover that ultimately got printed is actually a scan of a really tiny glass slide, the, like just the old glass slides, the Gepi or Jeppy, I don't know how to pronounce it, G-E-P-E slide mount that you can buy. And we drew with ink in a whole bunch of these slides, a pile of them. And the ink reacted with the, the pressure that came from the two pieces of glass in really interesting ways. So we were able to trap air bubbles in them and press them together and let them dry or not dry and shake them, turn them upside down, scan them different ways. And that is how that image was made. So it's a single slide um, scanned at really high resolution and then just a little bit of color correction for contrast and making the black and whites look really good. And then the type is added digitally to relate to that image. But it's something that we absolutely could not do on the computer and the the drastic scale change is really important too because all those little details of those little bubbles we couldn't even see a lot of that because the slide was so small so 
there's an element of surprise that comes out of of this process and the that actually helps us with the abstraction element a lot too is we leave a lot of the uh visual results up to the serendipity that's exists in the materials themselves yeah i think that that a big part of what makes us tick is probably working a lot with like sort of chaos and chance and unpredictability in the work. Um, and so, you know, that slide Anne's talking about, it sounds like we just dialed it right in, but really there was probably a hundred pictures, more 500 pictures, I mean, or, or scans of these things to kind of figure out the right composition and to kind of work the material and, and, you know, pressing it different hardnesses and, rotating it around and lighting it in different ways. And so there's mm -hmm. a very big, both an exploratory process where we're generating, it's a very iterative process where there's tons and tons and tons of stuff. And then there's a very intense um, and sometimes very challenging editing process of taking these usually hundreds of images and getting it to, to the one that kind of works the best. Um, and that's the part that's difficult. <laughs> the editing, we spend as much or sometimes even more time editing down options uh, than we do creating options. So that yeah. the editing is a really important part of the process. And do you have a particular uh, sort of way that you, you do that, that, that you make those decisions, or is it just very much dependent <laughs> on the cover and, and the brief and what, what's we come do. out of the camera? We have, we have a process that happens <laughs> every single cover and um it's kind of like fishing we we first cast a really wide net and um that starts with that pile of materials that we pull out in our studio uh, we rough things out very quickly and make as many options as we can to try and figure out okay how are we going to within like in this case, how are we going to treat the ink in the slides? What are the variables that are involved? How are we going to get type in there? How, how are we going to turn it into a two or a digital image? So we have to, there's a lot of testing that goes into in that phase, which we, which results in rough images. So well, once we go through that experimentation phase, we're left with a whole bunch of images that are just little nuggets of ideas. And we'll put those in, usually we use Lightroom to edit. We'll put that all in Lightroom. So it's like a just a big bucket of stuff that we pulled up, you know, like a fisherman sweeping the bottom of the ocean with his net. And then we sit down together and look at every single one and talk about its potential and slowly um, cut things out until we've narrowed down a material and a technique and whatever process we're going to use. And then we go through that same process at least two more times of, of from that one little nugget opening up as wide as we can and uh, diving, like diving into that one process and making as many images as we possibly can, and then sitting down and going through that one by one, editing, rejecting uh, process together. And then once we have um, that 
we usually end up doing it a third time, which is where we get into the really nitty gritty stuff like what point size should the subtitle be, how exactly should we crop it, um, that kind of thing. So it's a process of elimination more so than you know, looking at a thousand images and immediately saying this is the one, we slowly cull down our options until we're left with, you know, three or five. And then it's really clear which one is the winner usually. And then we do all of that two more times yeah. for two more ideas. Yeah. Wow. So it's definitely the, the word efficient is not a word that would come to mind for <laughs> how we work. Not at I, all. I think it's important to <laughs> clarify too that. Um, even though book covers make up 90% of our practice, they don't make up 90% of our income. So Mitch has a full-time teaching position at Rochester Institute of Technology in upstate New York, where he teaches graphic design. And that's where we get our health insurance and our, you know, part of our monthly income is stable because of Mitch's job, which it gives us the luxury of making book covers inefficiently and not worrying about, you know, spending two or three weeks on one cover. Um, that's usually how long it takes, at least two full weeks, sometimes three, to design one cover, which we certainly would not be able to do if we didn't have the safety net of Mitch's job. So right. um, we're not – I want to make sure that people understand – um, that there is a reality, you know, there's a reality check to this too, that we do have to eat and we do have to be able to go to the doctor. And that really comes from the full-time teaching job. I actually, I wanted to ask a bit more about the, the teaching side of the things and how that mm -hmm. might feed into your process as well. Oh, I would say, I would say constantly. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, uh, you know, I have the full-time teaching job, so I'm the one kind of out of the house teaching and I'm teaching graphic design. I'm teaching some fine art stuff. I teach, you know, freshmen up through grads, depending on the, any given semester. And I think that as I have taught more, I am learning to feel confident about teaching towards my interests and I think that every good educator that I've ever had and ever seen always teaches to sort of what their interests are. And, and if there's something that they're really not interested in, you can really tell when they teach it. And, and so the really good teachers, it could be a wide variety of things, but they always sort of have this kind of approach or a methodology that's, that's in their kind of wheelhouse. And I think over time I've gotten to teach not literally this process, but, 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 you know, the knee, the, 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 um, the sort of inherent ideas behind this process comes through in, I would say, the majority of the projects that I give. Um, and I think, you know, when Ann taught as well, same thing. It, it's really, it, it's kind of who we are. And so to pretend that doesn't exist and teach very, very things that are kind of very far away from that in school, I think is, it's sort of disingenuous. And I think it actually does a disservice to my students. So I have learned to not pretend, you know, like, like I, I'm very clear about what I do. Um, I, on first day I show them my website so they kind of know who I am and where I'm coming from. And I think what happens is there's this really delightful 
back and forth where I'm kind of doing my thing and showing them and then they're doing their thing and showing me. And those are not the same things. And that's a really wonderful part of teaching is it's not just I know everything, you know, listen to me because that's absolutely not the truth. And it's this really wonderful kind of give and take between myself and the students and then the students and the students to each other um, of all these different ways of approaching work and all these different ways of making. And that that absolutely feeds back into the work that Ann and I do. It's a, it's a big circle. It, it really is all directly related to each other in a really delightful way. The, um, the thing that I saw the biggest connection with our work was that teaching gave me a, a way to talk about my work that I wouldn't otherwise have because of the dialogue with the students. It forces you to really explain what you're thinking um, in a way that you don't talk with your clients, which I really appreciated. Yeah, and this is really interesting to me as, as somebody who who didn't go through a, a traditional design education. And, and it's, it's definitely something that I remember back when I was doing um, work at, at high school and you would just sitting across from somebody, you would start seeing things that, from their process that you can start incorporating into yours and and just that that back and forth even on a very small uh, small scale so yeah it, it must be mm -hmm. a, a very rewarding thing to do as well absolutely yeah so do you get much time to do your own um, personal projects oh um, definitely yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely that's we've that's we've tried to design our life around making sure that can happen mm. um so, Mitch, will you talk about our studio yeah. compound? Um, and so, so you know, we have uh, we just bought a house about a year ago in Rochester, and we we came into this house buying process looking at it not as like, is this a good house, but more as is this a good workspace that we can live in, um, because that's kind of what is more important to us. So we have um, you know sort of a normal like family home, but for us, the the majority of the space is work. Um, and so I have a, um, a photo dark room that I've built in one room um, and has a ceramic studio in the sort of lower level that is being built out right now. We have a lot of big um, like open workspaces that we can obviously do sort of the photo shoots and all the equipment. And, you know, we have a lot of like stuff that goes into this. Um, so there's a lot of materials. There's lots of drawers and lots of shelving and lots of cabinets with like things in it. Um, and so we really like that idea that, that, you know, we can get up and be working in three minutes if we want, you know, or we can work until 10 o'clock and go straight to bed. You know, there's no commute. And um, the live work thing for us has been really, really valuable because anytime sort of a random idea might hit or something strikes you, which seems to happen all the time, um, it's very easy to walk five feet and, and, maybe not literally make the entire thing at midnight, but kind of like write it down and, and kind of rub something together real fast and sort of get a sense of what that could be. Um, and so that has allowed us to have this really kind of practice in life where it's all kind of mixed together. And then, you know, as an educator in this country, at least, you know, I'm, I'm basically sort of teaching full time nine months a year, but I have a three month summer break and there's lots of winter, you know, breaks over the winter and even my sort of um, FaceTime obligation at school is not, you know, a full week of work. 
Um, but part of what I'm expected to do as an educator is also make stuff. So, so I'm sort of in some ways paid, in a way kind of paid twice to make book covers because, you know, there's the client relationship. But then as an educator, I'm expected to have a research agenda, which in my case is the book cover and the other stuff that we're doing. So it's sort of all, all again, it all just locks together really nicely for us, just, the, just for what we're doing. It makes sense. To, to the, back to the question about how, how are you able to do personal work too? The live work thing is essential. And then having the graphic design workspace right next to the dark room where Mitch is making photograms that have nothing to do with book covers, no clients, it's just purely fine art. Having those so close to each other, there's an inevitable overlap uh, both formally and Mm -hmm. um, philosophically. So what he's doing in the dark room, the aesthetics of that kind of filters into what we're doing in the book covers or the way of that we're approaching um, a certain material in a book cover gives us an idea to work out in the basement ceramic sculpture studio. So we like to have everything mixed together and that um, makes it easier for us to spend more time working on personal projects than we would if we had a really clear divide between the client work and the personal work. And is a lot of that done individually or, or are you collaborating on that as well? Um, I would say that the, the book cover work is, is completely collaborative. It's, it's purely collaborative. Um, the, the darkroom work that I do, I mean, I would say that is quote unquote my work. And I think the ceramic work that Anne is doing, she would say is her work. But the reality is, is Anne looks at what I do in the darkroom 20 times a day and, and vice versa. And so it's all collaborative to some extent. I would say maybe the ownership varies a little bit. You know, we both really own the, the, um, the um, book cover work, but I think I own my darkroom stuff and Anne owns her ceramic stuff. But but there, there's no greater critic than each other for us. So any idea, any question, I mean, there, she's always the first, you know, she's the only opinion that really matters to me that much. Um, and I think vice versa for her. And so it kind of, you know, it's kind of nice to have things that we come together on and then things we separate on, but we always know that we have each other's kind of back on everything. Yeah, we discuss everything. So whether, like, even if it's, you know, how are we going to frame this photogram for this exhibition um that's something that we'll look at together Uh, but another uh, part of that is we met in art school actually met mitch on the first day of graphic design class so we have been working together from the very beginning of our entry into graphic design so it's kind of um, impossible for us to work without each other at this point. We really depend on the other person to pick up the slack in each other's weaknesses. So while it's really obviously a collaboration in the book covers, um, that certainly carries through to our um, so-called personal work. Mm-hmm. Um, we really rely on each other. But I um, I would call the book covers very personal too, even though there is a client involved and outside content. It we I think our process is more enjoyable for us if we can make it as personal 
as possible. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you enjoy the process of, of having a design brief? I, I mean, I, I suppose they're so different between having having a design brief and just playing around and doing something for yourself. <laughs> um, we love but, it. Yeah. We love a design brief. We absolutely mm. love it. There's, I, there's nothing more inspiring to me than a list of words that are not attached to existing images or um, any sort of direction of how to make something, but are just ideas, words from the design brief. So we love that limitation. We love having a little push um, to, you know, a, a word to lean on or push off of. And uh, we love the limitations of a deadline and a dimension. So those are the client briefs are awesome. We love working with clients. Yeah. And I mean, th- they're a joy to look at as well because you're kind of thinking, oh, I wonder how that relates to the book and and then I guess if you start reading it as well you're just seeing more and more connections and and that mm-hmm. what, what seems like an abstraction to begin with becomes a, a richer and deeper world that's our goal I think for a book cover to be successful of course it has to catch the reader's attention you know at the very beginning so that they actually want to pick up the book and read it but I also think there needs to be a reward for the reader once they're into the book through, you know, halfway through or at the end where they realize something about the cover that they wouldn't have uh, recognized without having read the text. So it needs to communicate on a variety of levels. And I think that's really important to a successful cover. Yeah, and it's almost like a visual puzzle. It's, yeah, that, that's what I most enjoy about looking at other designers' works. And it's, it's yeah. part of the joy of, of reading as well. It's, it just adds that extra dimension to it. And I'm, I'm just looking at, at one of your covers here, um, the one for Parade by Patricia Grace, which it, she's a New Zealand author, so that's why that kind of jumped out at me. Um, yeah. But it's not a so type that, of, it, that... it, it's not one that I've read, Go so ahead. I'm kind of interested in how how that concept relates to the to the story that's actually for a short story it's not a book um before we could start designing book covers for real clients like verso books or penguin or stanford university press we had to have a portfolio of book covers to show to potential clients so that's from a series that i worked on in on my own time that I called story covers where I read and found all sorts of short stories that I loved and then designed a book cover for that short story. So that story parade by Patricia Grace, uh, the, the element of hair and how that relates to cultural identity and personal identity is really important. So that was a really big symbol in the story and it was a fun ex- a fun material to experiment with and that's how that cover came about so it's it's a photograph of hair from Sally Beauty Supply since I didn't want to cut my own yeah that uh that weaves through the type and 
the idea is that the hair and the type are kind of dissolving into each other and uh, relates to some of the themes in the story. Yeah, and it's it's a wonderful cover. So thank you so much. Thank you. So there are quite a few here that are. Is the swimmer? Is that another one that's a short story? Yes, that is from that same series, Story Covers, and that's a really fun story where the main character he swims across the suburbs, jumping from one neighbor's pool to another. So that uh, cover is all those lines are various swimming pool shapes overlaid on top of each other. And then there's some watercolor in there too. And the, the ladder going into the S, which is this pile or not of swimming pools is it speaks to the experience of that main character swimming his way across the suburbs. Yeah. It's another one I absolutely love. Thank you. Um, so I'm just wondering how, how many of these you did that for, to build a portfolio to, to get into book design because this is something that I've been doing myself is building up a, a portfolio of work just of, of books that I particularly love and um, um, the often, website often... is chronological so oh, you okay. can um, it, if you okay I'm scrolling up here the first the client the the real book cover client starts at Foucault and the politics of rights for oh, yeah, Stanford yeah. University Press and everything after, everything above that is all for book cover clients that we've worked on since 2014. So it's our our book cover career is pretty recent. It's only in the last three years that we've made the book cover work that people recognize us for. So were you displaying these? these personal projects alongside your other work or was it just book design that you were sort of focusing on projecting to the outside world? Uh, well, depends what year you look at our old websites from. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in 2007, we were com- completely self-employed. We didn't have any teaching jobs we were freelancing and that's how we were doing everything. And there wasn't any Obamacare. We were paying an arm and a leg for health insurance and working all the time. So we were trying to get as many projects as we possibly could. So we showed as many different types of projects on our website as we possibly could to cast a really wide uh, net of potential clients. And then as we, as our desire to specialize became more and more, important to us we whittled down the website to show only the type of work that we wanted to do more of uh, because what you show of course attracts the types different different types of clients so uh, in 2014 January 2014 we made a really uh, conscious decision to just show work that was book cover or had elements that were clearly related to our goals with book cover design. And then Mitch has a separate website where he has um, his photo work up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So same, you know, the same work plus some of the um, writing that I've done as, you know, an academic as well as some of the, um, the more, you know, the photogram, the darkroom stuff that I've been doing. Sometimes, um, sometimes students email me and ask how do they, 
uh, start designing book covers. And I mean, all I can really tell them is the strategy that worked for us and that the most important um, element, I think, is that idea of showing the type of work that you want to do. So if you want to design book covers, then design a bunch of book covers that you're really proud of and then show those. And that's going to lead you more to book covers than showing a bunch of websites or annual reports or whatever else you have experience in. So you can kind of define what your next projects will be by how you present yourself to those potential clients. Yeah, because I think there is a tendency for students just to put all of their work up on on a, a website mm-hmm. or in their portfolio. Right. And yeah, that, that tailoring is, is definitely certain, important. Sometimes that's what you have to do. And um, in 2007 and 2008, we, we would take pretty much any job as long as it didn't conflict with our politics like uh, we turned down uh, a big job because we just thought it was bad for the world Um, but you know other than that we would take big jobs small jobs you know clients that were well known clients that were brand new and uh, it's there is a a hustling part of it in the beginning where you do have to, you know, get as much as you can. So we're really grateful that we have been able to specialize, but we certainly recognize that um, there are outside forces you have to Mm -hmm. consider too. Yeah. And it took quite a while to get to specializing, you know, it's 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 10 years or whatever, you know, it wasn't on day one. It definitely took some time. I think you have to be really tenacious. And that's something that I have a difficult time getting my students to understand that you're not a superstar on day one. You know, mm-hmm. you really have to work really hard. And there's just no way around it. Um, I think that for us, we're still figuring it out every day. And that's great. I think that's why it's interesting. You know, it's fun because we are figuring it out every day. Yeah. And also, <laughs> I at the beginning of every single project without fail, Mitch and I look at each other and say, what are we doing? Do we even know how to do this? Because it's scary. The, the job that we as graphic designers have, no matter what you're designing book cover website or anything, you're starting a lot of times with bare bones content. It might maybe a vague, um, a vague art direction, but you're essentially making something out of nothing and taking a blank page or a blank screen and making it into something, you know, as beautiful and communicative as you can. And there is a bit of magic in that process that's hard to define and hard to, um, you know, know it's always going to happen uh, because a lot of times it comes out of serendipity and uh, just accidental things in the process that you, you know, wouldn't know until you get into it. So that there is a fear of the unknown and a fear that, okay, this is going to be the one book cover that we're not going to be able to do, or we're not going to be able to figure it out. And there's a sense of, um, 
there's a little bit of anxiety at the beginning of every project. And I think that's something that even designers who've been doing work for 50 years probably feel. Yeah, it's it's such a scary thing when what you rely on is it's just sort of intangible thing. It's you can't kind of say, well, this is where my ideas come from. It's especially right. when it's a process where you're just you've just got to start and start playing around with different materials or or different shapes and until something starts to to work. It's, um, right. Yeah. It's, so it's scary. It's really scary. And and any I appreciated hearing that as a student, I appreciated hearing designers that I looked up to, you know, tell me about the behind the scenes anxiety that they experienced. Um, because even the biggest name, you know, most famous designers out there, I'm sure that they, you know, get, get nervous about that huge task we have about creating something out of nothing. It's a big challenge and um it's exciting and it feels really good at the end but there certainly is a little bit of nervousness at the beginning yeah it sort of seems almost magical that sort of where where those ideas come from and and because it feels like that it's you sort of think well that could go away so so easily right 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 um yeah there's a there is a flow, a sense of flow and of being in the zone. And you, there are things you can do or things that we do in our life and our practice that encourage that state of flow to happen. Uh, for example, when we are in that initial stage of playing with the materials and figuring out a technique and really generating a lot of ideas, we do not look at the internet all day. Oh. We don't check our email. We don't, we try to um, minimize all distractions. Like I won't go to the grocery store until the very end of the day. I won't look at my email until the very end of the day until we have something. And that helps to get us into that, that state where, you know, one idea leads to another really fluidly and um, it's easier to, get things out of your head and on into, you know, physical form faster with fewer distractions. What else do we do, Mitch, to encourage that state of flow? Um, I mean, I think that like no idea is too stupid. Like, like no, yeah. no, no tool or no material or no method or no form or anything is too either like dumb or ridiculous. So we really, at the beginning, any absolutely anything goes there there's nothing we will not throw out there as a potential thought um even even to a fault where you know we have these great ideas and then we can't physically execute them sometimes um but but you know over time we've gotten kind of a a good sense of the of the nature of the work um and yeah i think it's really hard to make a bunch of stuff most of which is garbage i mean a lot of what we make is junk and i think that that's really hard to reconcile with at first, but at, over time, you know, Anne and I have learned that that out of that junk, some stuff will happen. You know, inevitably, eventually, something will happen. Um, but there's a lot of very like frustrating <laughs> kind of moments where we're making stuff and it keeps not working. But I think that allowing that to happen and and understanding that that is how this works 
Um, it again lets us not get stressed about it. You know, we don't we don't really freak out if we have a few hours that are essentially worthless because it doesn't matter because it'll it'll come back around. Another thing that helps us get into that state of um, flow is to have everything set up and ready to go. So if the less friction there is to um, actually, you know, produce that nugget of an idea, the easier it is to produce more of them. So we have a room that's dedicated photo studio where our lights and our tripod are always set up and ready to go because anyone who works with that equipment knows what a pain in the butt it is to set it up. So we have it ready to go. So there's no excuse not to try something that relies on a, you know, a studio lit photograph. Our scanners and printers and all the various tools that we use that require cords are on wheeled carts and tables so that we can move them anywhere to any computer in our studio that we need to at any time. So it's always ready to go. And then we save all of our uh, physical stuff. So we have this really big collection of supplies and outtakes and um, just random stuff that we can open the cabinet doors and look at all at once and have ready to go without having to drive to the store and buy something or go into our storage room. So minimizing the friction involved in um, testing out ideas is really important to getting into that state of flow where the magic stuff can happen. Yeah, I definitely agree. And that's, that's something that I find myself as well. And it was interesting what you were saying about turning the internet off because when you're in that, that kind of, that flow, but you're also looking at different iterations and they're all, you know, most of it is, is looking a bit crap at the time. And then, yeah, <laughs> then you go on Instagram and you just think, why am I even bothering? I mean, this is, this is what I go through at least. Yes. Yes. I, Mitch is more active on the internet than I am, but I find the internet to be an enormous source of anxiety. And I really, do not do well um, when I am comparing myself to others, uh, people, their life, their work, whatever it may be. So um, I really need to separate myself from what's going on with everyone else in order to really focus on what's going on in my brain and exploring that without distraction. And, and I think a lot of how we work the, the people always say, where do you get your inspiration from? And the inspiration is not from Instagram or the internet or books. It's from making stuff. And that's really, I, I think that took us a while to figure out. But once we figure that out, I think our work got much better, much faster. Yeah. Um, we're really, we get inspiration from process and that's it. You know, we're, we're not, when we start a project, we do not go out and look at existing things that have to do with it. Words are a huge source of inspiration yeah. to us. Um, that would be the one of the one concrete thing that comes from an outside source would be words in the design brief that we're given, uh, or if we're given the manuscript, words from that. So we start out by we spend a day reading and writing and um, doing like those little. Um, I don't know, those 
I'm forgetting the word, but like those, a mind map, or... like a mind, yeah, mind yeah. map of where this word makes us think of this word, and and then we'll take whittle down the ideas into a few words that are the most important, really the essence of what we're trying to communicate. And then we'll often look at those words as directions, like literal directions of where we could start. So for example, if the piece is about um, looking at something from many different perspectives, if it's maybe an academic text about different perspectives on a an art movement or something, for example, we might take the title and photograph it from a hundred different perspectives and use that word perspective as a visual direction. So that the, the verbal stuff is a great source of inspiration. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Mitch, do you want to talk about our inside walks and how those inspire pieces? I think that's, yeah. Um, I mean, a big thing for us was we spent a year, and this was probably three-ish years ago, I think. Um, yeah, we spent, 2014. 2014. We spent a whole year every day just making stuff, not for a client, just for us, just literally to just sit down and make stuff, spend about a half hour a day, grab some random things off the shelves and just make some formal things with no meaning behind them and no broader intention and what that gave us over a year is this massive library of form. So we have got this huge sort of unique library of all these sort of ideas. So anytime a project comes up, one of the things we always do is we dip back into that library and see if anything kind of just clicks into place, which it almost always does. Um, and so that was a really good, I really recommend that, that process to anybody um, because making just to make without a client, without even really content, um, and just having a sort of set of formal vocabulary that you're developing makes it much, much easier when a project comes in to kind of not like freeze, you know, yeah. you can always grab something and go, okay, that's, you know, this is about X and this is sort of reminds me of that, okay, let's start with that. And you, need, that, you know, that humankind cover that we were talking about at the beginning, the ink drawing in the slide mount. That came directly out of an inside walk experiment, one of the 30-minute exercises we did. So, And we didn't design that cover until uh, we designed that in 2016. 2016, yeah. So the idea of working with materials within those slide mounts sat in our library for a couple of years, and then we were able to uh, revisit it explore it deeper when the humankind project came along that's such an extraordinary idea yeah (laughs) because i mean you you could just you could go to instagram for inspiration and or or to pinterest but but to actually steal your own past ideas that's yeah yeah that makes so much more sense yeah nothing we make is garbage literally every single thing we make it's saved because it might not be good like today, but it might be good three years from now. You know, yeah. it might be valuable later. Yeah. And sometimes we revisit the rejected cover idea. So because we have to do three for, well, two to three for each, um, to each title, two to three totally different ideas. There's a lot of research and refinement that went into the ideas that get rejected. And it's always um, helpful to have those in our back pocket too, 
to use as starting points for projects that come along. We can go into the rejected pile and get a lot of good nuggets out of there. Yeah, we sort of like appropriate from ourselves, kind of. Totally. Yeah, because there's always that worry when you're you're consuming so much online, well, at least I know that I do, that, that something's going to stick in your brain, but you're not going to remember where it came from. You're not going to be able to cite it properly. <laughs> yeah. And then somebody's right. going to come along and tell you that, oh, no, that wasn't your idea. You've actually stolen it from this. Or, yeah, but if you've got that library yeah. of your own stuff, that, yeah, what a wonderful idea. I, I, the... I will definitely be taking that on board. <laughs> Working with our hands and the the real physical part of it, um, that also it kind of makes it impossible to for us to be copying somebody else and for other people to duplicate what we've done because so much of the aesthetic quality of the work comes from this process that's difficult to replicate. Even sometimes we can't replicate our own process if we, you know, if there's an inside walk from three years ago that we love, that's perfect for this title. And we set up, you know, as close as we can to the, um, you know, interaction of materials that we had in that little test. Sometimes we can't even replicate it either. So when you get off the computer, things happen that make the work um, have a unique quality that's hard to copy or be copied. That's so much to process there. <laughs> I'm my, my brain's just firing and yeah, lots of ideas going on. <laughs> but um, I guess maybe we should move on to the question that I've been asking every book designer that I can find to ask. Um, and that is, what do you think it is that makes a great book cover? I think it has to be seductive. And, and seductive on lots of levels. I think that has to be visually seductive. I have to want to look at it. Um, I have to want to care about what it is. Um, I think it's seductive in a sort of meaningful way or in a semiotic way. I kind of want to like decipher the code in the book cover. Um, and then I think as a, as a maker, you know, as one who creates things, I think there's sort of like a methodological seduction. Um, like the way we work is really in addition to being sort of frustrating and time consuming is also really fun and weird and very exciting. And it really like, like the idea of like grabbing stuff and ink and getting dirty, it's very, sedu it's seductive. It's really um, appealing in a lot of ways, you know, when we're, we're standing over like concrete or paint or whatever we're doing. And so I kind of think that to, to me, and I, I think to some extent to Anne is what makes a great book cover great book cover and does that apply to all different types of design and fine art as well i think for me it does yeah, yeah. i think that that is is what interests me i mean i don't know if Anne will differ. for me for me some of the things that make a good book cover one would be a really strong visual verbal connection so i want the title the word of the title to relate to the form of the title and have the two reinforce each other. So that visual verbal connection needs to be really strong and interesting and apparent. Um, and I think beauty is really important. Um, form is really the entry point to 
ideas when it comes to art and design. If something is not interesting or beautiful, however you describe or define beautiful, you know, ugly can be beautiful. Um, if the form isn't intriguing or like Mitch said, seductive, then nobody's going to go further and dive into the ideas behind the piece. So the visual quality is really, really important to me. And then I think the cover needs to reward the reader. It needs to um, connect with the reader at various points in the book and give the reader a little, you know, special reward at the end where they can look at the cover again after having um, consumed the text and see something different in it that makes them think about what they just read in a deeper way. Uh, and then finally, I'm always looking at book covers from the perspective of a book cover designer. So I'm really interested in innovative ways that people come up with to, you know, fuse type an image together or to um, make a certain uh, visual effect happen or use a certain material. So I think um, the innovate, the act, the, the nitty gritty like process of making design, I think innovation within that process coming through in a book cover is really important to me. I don't know that it's important to somebody who's not designing book covers on a daily basis, but that's something that I look for. Yeah, well, that's definitely something I look at as well. And I sort of go into a bookshop and say, oh, I wonder how that was made. <laughs> and, and, yeah. And wondering yeah. whether it's it's mostly digital or whether somebody's working with paints or, I mean, I, I look at most of your work and just think, wow, I, <laughs> I wonder how that was made. And yeah, it's, it's is, just fantastic. That's one of the... Um, best compliments thank you i love when (laughs) mitch and i love when people can't figure out how we make something and we were at cranbrook um maybe two years ago giving a talk about our work and afterwards um one of the women came up to us and said oh my god i had no idea you know that you use beads and concrete and all the stuff we showed I thought you did it all in cinema 4d like it was all um, (laughs) like three-dimensional like like, digital rendering (laughs) um and my I mean I would love it if I could do that I would love to have 3d rendering as a tool that I can add to our little you know toolbox here I am I don't know how to do that if I could I would um, find a way to fuse that into our process somehow too but uh, I think that idea that you don't know how something was made actually speaks to a bigger a bigger part of our what we're doing that's really important to us which is we're using materials and you know processes of documenting these materials to pull certain qualities out of them that communicate certain things without drawing attention to themselves as uh, the material. So trying to take a material, make it less self-conscious and emphasize the parts of uh, whatever the visual form of that material is that apply to ideas we're trying to communicate, emphasize that and de-emphasize the recognizable quality of that material so we can kind of harness 
various materials for their communication qualities. And we do that by drastically changing the scale or we invert images all the time. We love inverting images or really altering the color um, or um, using materials with tools that maybe they're not supposed to go with. One example of that would be uh, there's a cover we did called Crowds and Party, or I'm sorry, Capitalism in, in the Web of Life, by Jason W. Moore for Verso Books. And it's a black and white photograph of thousands of little dots accumulating around letter forms. And it's unclear if it's fish eggs or clouds or confetti. It's kind of hard to figure out what it is. And it's actually really um, quite simple. It's a bunch of Martha Stewart craft beads from Michael's poured onto a piece of transparency that we had arranged carefully with some typography and then photographed. But because the scale change is so drastic and the image has been inverted and color corrected to make it higher contrast, the recognizable quality of beads has completely fallen away. So there's, there's no, you know, self-conscious Martha Stewart, Michael's crafts beads (laughs) Um, in that cover. But what we have been able to keep is the abstract communicative qualities, associations of, you know, a million things accumulating, uh, an organic spread, things that ideas that are inherent in that material, but that sometimes are hard to recognize when the identity of that material is so front and center. That's a long-winded way of saying that everything communicates and we just try and massage whatever we can to communicate a little bit clearer. I think this the way that you work just, it it looks like, it's the kind of thing that it's sort of, it looks very modern, but it's also very timeless because some of this looks a lot like early photographic processes as well. So things yeah. like, like the bubbles and the high contrast. Thank you. Um, well, graphic design history is really important to us. Mm. Uh, and art history is really important to us. So we're definitely, all of the way we're working is actually not really unique. Before computers, this is how everybody worked. Yeah. It's just unique to work this way in 2017. Right. Yeah, but I couldn't sort of pin it down and say, this was made in 2017 or 2016 it's I, I don't I don't know quite when I would pin it down to but that's that's what's so wonderful about it I think that's awesome Thank I you. love hearing that <laughs> that's great Thank you a big reason why we do work the way we do is the influence of two designers that are really important to us Nancy Skolos and Tom Waddell who they they've been making these amazing posters for over 30 Quite years while, yeah. um, collaborating and Tom is a photographer and Nancy is a typographer. I'd really, she does a lot of the type. He does a lot of the photo and they build these really incredible setups that are photographed and manipulated 
in a similar way to what I'm describing. They do it much better than we do, but that's their role model for us, certainly in the way that they work and approach their process. And then also in some of the specifics of building things and then photographing them to be able to use them in a, a reproducible digital setting. Yeah, we found that physical things have sort of different affordances or different things they're good at than digital things. Um, so it's really not that like we don't like digital. We love digital. I mean, we use digital every single day. But there are things that happen physically that just work better than the digital equivalent. Similarly, there are digital things that work better than the physical equivalent. And so we've learned to kind of um, really lean into both of them, depending on what we're trying to accomplish. There's something very wonderful about getting your hands into something. And I, I find when I'm working digitally too much that I, I really crave going back to either pen and paper or trying out some mm -hmm. new medium and just, yeah, get getting into something so you're not just doing the same kind of thing over and over, which I find happens with digital more. Right. Totally. Um, and another piece that's important to us too is um, to go, go back and forth. So we don't just build real stuff and then photograph it and go, you know, from hand to the computer. We go from hand to computer to hand to computer to hand to computer and in and out of the two as much as possible. So one of the things we use almost in every single project is our little laser printer because we can, you know, make an make an image that comes from some sort of physical setup and then manipulate it digitally and then print it out again and then cut it up and manipulate it another way and then photograph it again and do that over and over. And that's another technique to do that, pull that those properties out of materials without making them self-conscious. Another way to do that is to run them through an analog digital process over and over again because it whittles them down to the the essence of their form without uh, holding on to every detail and recognizable quality and also makes it fun to work on the project when you get to go back and forth from sitting at your computer to getting your hands dirty and in terms of the production of the books once they go to print do you use a lot of um, things like spot uv or foiling things like that or is it mostly just the image we have occasionally used spot uv but we don't normally have a lot of input or control over that that the printing where it's printed and the type of paper it's printed on and any special treatments are usually defined by the budget and we may it may not even be a possibility so for example all of our books from for Stanford University Press, they're all four color prints on matte paper, and that's that's one of the limitations that we work with. So we know we can't use a PMS color, we can't use a spot UV, we can't use you know some crazy metallic paper. Um, it's just another limitation. Of course, it's fun to be able to play with that stuff when we can, like the. What's the cover that, oh, the Humankind cover that just came in, the sample that mm -hmm. just came in the other day. We used a spot gloss on every single one of those bubbles. 
Oh, wow. Uh, which that and then the black hole where the word humankind is, is matte. So that contrast, I think, enhanced the cover. But I don't think you have to you don't have to rely on fancy printing tricks to make a, a good cover. They're certainly fun to use and can make a cover even better. But you can also do a really cool stuff with just a, you know, four color digital print on, you know, house paper. This has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for your time and, and your wisdom. And I, I want to go off and, start designing stuff now because yeah it's just been such an inspiration (laughs) well thank you for um taking the time to interview us and for your interest in our work and for you know letting us meet another book cover designer all the way in new zealand it's really (laughs) cool to meet you from across the world yeah thank you very much we really appreciate it cool yeah spine is a production of spine magazine For show notes, articles, audio and video about the enormous talent that goes into creating books, visit spinemagazine.co.